I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of China Power Podcast, we will explore how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted China's power and international image. After initial devastating outbreak in Wuhan in late 2019, early 2020, China managed to curtail the spread of the virus through forced lockdowns, strict limits on entry by foreign travelers, and other measures. With the virus largely contained and the Chinese economy beginning to recover, Beijing turned to shoring up its influence and global image abroad. In May 2020, President Xi Jinping delivered a speech at the World Health Assembly in which he declared that China had, quote, turned the tide on the virus and was preparing to use its resources to help other countries do the same. Additionally, she made several important international commitments, including pledges that China would provide $2 billion to help with economic recovery in developing countries, and that China would take measures to fast-track the international flow of COVID-fighting goods. She also pledged that China would make its COVID-19 vaccines available as a global public good. In part, China has struck to these commitments. Chinese exports and donations of medical supplies and personal protective equipment surged to record levels in 2020. And as of July 2021, China has already committed or donated over 800 million doses of its COVID vaccines to nearly 100 countries. So have these efforts paid off for Beijing? Has China's power grown as a result of these actions? Or have Chinese activities highlighted or created tensions between China, recipient countries, and the international community? Here to discuss these questions and more, we are joined by Dr. Yan Zhonghuang. Dr. Huang is a Senior Fellow of Global Health at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he directs the Global Health Governance Roundtable Series and co-directs the China and Global Governance Project. Dr. Huang is also a Professor and Director of Global Health at Yen Hall University's School of Diplomacy and International Relations. Yan Zhong, thanks for joining us. It's good to have you back on the China Power Podcast. Thank you, Bonnie, for having me. So thank you very much for joining us. And I know you worked on this topic for quite some time. And when you last joined us about over a year ago, we had asked you on how China was handling the pandemic at home. You know, a lot has changed since January 2020. So I'd love to get your perspective now. When you're looking at the past year and a half, how do you assess China has handled the pandemic and how would you assess that both from how China views it as well as how the larger international community has viewed China's handling the pandemic? Okay, well, I think uh, China's initial mishandling of the outbreak you know, has tarnished its international reputation that in turn affected China's soft power status. Because we know that the major contributor of the soft power is how a country's domestic uh, governance, its policies are perceived internationally. If you look at the, this pure survey you know, that was conducted in the summer of 2020, 
the unfavorable views of China reached historical highs, right, in the 14 OECD countries. And similarly in China, where there's the Tsinghua University study on international opinions on China that was showing on Twitter, they find a clear negative opinion of China after March 15th last year. Although that reputational hit, you know, could be attributed to a lot of other factors, including right, its heavy-handed approach toward Hong Kong, Xinjiang, the COVID-19 pandemic's effect on China's soft power laws, it's hard to dispute. There was a, a study, it was actually a media sentiment analysis of 1.3 million statements, you know, mentioned China and COVID-19 from more than 100 countries. It reveals a clearly and consistently negative relationship between COVID-19 deaths and media tones about China in those countries, you know. So, you know, we don't have systematic data to measure the response to China's pandemic response. But in the West, there were studies seems to suggesting that response was largely negative. You know, there was like, you know, pure global attitude survey, right? Conducted in summer 2020. You know, there's the meeting of only 31% respondents, you know, across this 14 countries said China has done a good job addressing the pandemic. But that is also changing now, right? In spring 2021, we found that those who had positive evaluation of China's pandemic response actually increased to 49%. You know, that was almost half of those people, you know, endorsed China's pandemic response, you know, compared with meeting of only 37% who said something about the United States response to the pandemic. That's super fascinating. So you mentioned the Tsinghua study. How did China respond to that study? Because a Chinese institution commissions that, that study, so hopefully it would be viewed as more unbiased. And I would also love to follow up on your point about countries viewing China more positively in 2021 than before. What do you think has caused that shift from 2020 to 2021? Well, sort of for that Tsinghua study, you know, that uh, was the uh, scholarly research, right, that was reported, uh, you know, only briefly, you know, like uh, receive essentially less attention from the Chinese media, you know, because certainly that does not make China look good, right? You know, because the Twitter, you know, since, you know, that uh, most Chinese don't have access to, you know, that clearly reflected, right, the international views, you know, opinions on the country. And it was also, we have seen this increase in negative opinion on China, right? The significant increase after March 15th, you know, that was during the pandemic. And actually also China started to show, right, its ability to stabilize the situation, you know, to rein in the spread of the COVID 19s. But the society opinions on China's pandemic response also, you know, like shift, you know, that initially I think it might be more shaped, you know, by, you know, the initial mishandling of the outbreak. But over time, you know, when you saw this contrast, right, between China. And other countries, including in the United States, right, the while China already 
become like an early winner in fighting the pandemic. But uh, you know, the pandemic you know re- turned out to be a much lengthier you know and deadly process. But in the West, you know, they saw the contrast you know, and started to probably develop this more positive view towards China's pandemic response. You know, that is my understanding. You know, of that shift in public opinions toward. China's pandemic response. Super fascinating. In terms of China's pandemic response, and I guess some of the ways in which China has been trying to contribute, we've seen、uh, President Xi Jinping and other Chinese officials push for a Health Silk Road. Could you talk a little bit about what is this Health Silk Road, and how important is it to China's Belt and Road Initiative? What role does it play in advancing China's interests as the pandemic has been unfolding? You know, I think simply speaking, right, the Health Silk Road is extension of China's Belt and Road Initiative (BI), right? But the like BI, the Health Silk Road, I think, remains one of the least defined diplomatic initiatives. To my knowledge, originated in the 2015 document. Unveiled by you know the National Health and Family Planning Commission, the purpose was to facilitate you know the implementation of the Belt and Road Initiative you know through health cooperation between China and the countries participating in BRI. President Xi officially proposed that concept. The Health Silk Road in the 2016 speech during his visit to Uzbekistan. And the following year, right, we saw China signing the MOU, you know, with the World Health Organization, you know, pledging to support the Health Silk Road and improve health outcomes in BRI countries. But despite the blessing of President Xi and the WHO, prior to the COVID nineteen outbreak, you know, the Health Silk Road remained largely. Undefined initiative, you know, piggybacking on BI, you know, with、uh, like wish list of objectives and projects. You know, some of those proposed projects, you know, like establishing a Belt and Road in public health network, never materialized. Other projects, you know, that were included on the rubric of Health Silk Road, you know, like professional training. You know, organizing high-level regional forums, you know, for health officials had actually been implemented even before the conception of the Health Silk Road. You know, but the COVID nineteen pandemic provided us great opportunities, certainly, to revitalize this seemingly dormant initiative. You know, the pandemic caused immediate crises to the implementation of the Belt and Road Initiative. By you know tarnishing China's international image, by causing the disruption of the global supply chain, so you know by sharing China's experience in pandemic control and by providing those critical medical products, you know such as PPE and vaccines, you know the Health Silk Road actually helped keep the、uh, Belt and Road Initiative alive and also helped shape the、uh, narrative, you know about. Its role in the pandemic. Thank you. Yeah, that's a really comprehensive background as well as description of the Health Silk Road. When we're trying to understand the Health Silk Road in terms of China's future ambitions, and we're recently getting more and more indications, you know, that the pandemic is likely to be more of a longer-term issue than just, for example, 
an issue that we're going to be dealing with this year. How do you see the household grown in terms of China's actions moving forward? Do you see it as increasingly become one of the most important elements of the Belt and Road Initiative and China being much more interested in becoming the lead or one of the main leaders in terms of global health providers? Well, I still don't know, actually, in terms of the future of the health of Silk Road. You know, the anecdotal evidence does suggest that China's, you know, mask diplomacy, you know, vaccine diplomacy has facilitated China's overall BI effort, right? The Council on Foreign Relations Independent Task Report released in April this year suggested that following China's delivery of critical medical products, you know, BI partners, you know, closely aligned with Beijing, countries like Pakistan have been more willing right, to give China the praise it seeks, you know, that, uh, you know, is expected to help, right, at least to provide the sort of a rubric to facilitate the implementation of this signature foreign policy initiative. But again, we don't have systematic data and to show exactly how, you know, this mask diplomacy, vaccine diplomacy, you know, actually help China uh, to implement the BRI. It is also interesting to note, you know, that uh, there is also overlapping uh, between uh, BRI countries and those receiving Chinese vaccines. Uh, most of the countries in Africa and Southeast Asia are both. But despite the calls for prioritizing BI countries in providing Chinese vaccines, many countries on the receiving end of China's vaccine diplomacy, such as Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico, have not formally joined the BI. Similarly, those who have joined the BI, like Austria, Italy, and Portugal, are not recipients of Chinese vaccines. So that might explain why China prefers to justify its shipment of its vaccines, you know, medical products in terms of so-called building a community of shared future for mankind instead of, you know, health silk road. You know, so that uh, also lead us to questioning right, to what extent this health silk road will continue to function as an important component of the BI. That's a really interesting point of pointing out that a number of recipients of Chinese vaccines have not are not part of the BRI, whereas some BRI members also do not want Chinese vaccines. And that leads me to a, a question that we've been trying to understand is as China thinks about donating or providing medical supplies abroad, as well as China's provision of vaccines, have you seen the recipient countries of Chinese uh, medical supplies? Are they largely the same as the recipient countries of Chinese vaccines? If they're different, what is driving this difference between who China provides general medical supplies to and who China provides vaccines to? Again, it's very hard to find out exactly what motivates China to provide those critical medical products. Because if you look at the mask diplomacy, right, there's a difference between mask diplomacy and the vaccine diplomacy, right? Because the, for the recipients of mask diplomacy include both the developing countries and the developer countries, right? Countries like Spain and Italy, right? But for the vaccine diplomacy, right, uh, the recipient countries you know, mostly 
uh, in the middle and lower middle income countries. You know that when China is considering, you know, which countries will receive the Chinese, you know, vaccines. You know, I could identify like three patterns. First, the countries tend to be those who are badly hit by the pandemic, and secondly, well, they tend to be more the Chinese traditional allies. You know, the、uh, countries like、uh, Pakistan, you know, and then also countries in sub-Saharan Africa in particular. And then by those countries, you know that China define as a regional、uh, sort of a strategic priority,、uh, like countries in Southeast Asia. So it is like a combination, I would say, of both、uh, strategic considerations, you know, as well as commercial interests, you know, that motivated China to send the vaccines overseas. Given these different, I guess, motivations and drivers for China's provision of mass diplomacy and vaccines, are you seeing that China is then, as a result, more successful in winning, whether that's goodwill or building relations with vaccines, than it was with its mass diplomacy? Yeah, I think there was sort of like assumption, you know, that the Chinese vaccine diplomacy was more successful, you know, than. It's mask diplomacy. You know, the, the assumptions was that Chinese mask diplomacy was clumsy, you know, ineffective. You know, but I just find a study that analyzed close to six hundred unique mask diplomacy events. You know, across one hundred fifty-eight countries. Actually, it found that Chinese mask diplomacy actually worked to offset, you know, the reputational damage to China during the pandemic. And certainly, right, we have the study showing how the vaccine diplomacy worked. Right, that this essentially those countries that were recipients of Chinese COVID nineteen vaccines were more likely to support you know China's official narrative on its response to the pandemic, and are less likely to support the Western narrative that attributed the global spread of the virus to China's mishandling of the outbreak. You know, but. Overall, the lack of transparency, safety or quality control issues, you know, the propaganda also tarnished, you know, China's efforts to you know, supply the medical products overseas. The mask diplomacy we know some of the recipient countries like Canada, Netherlands, Spain, Turkey rejected Chinese PPE and testing kits as substandard or defective. And as far as the vaccines are concerned, by the relatively low efficacy rate and the lack of transparency by the, in announcing the interim results of the phase three clinical trials, it also led countries to question the effectiveness of the Chinese-made vaccines. Earlier this year, there was a survey of YouGov, you know, suggesting you know that many countries that had the Less favorable view of the Chinese-made vaccines, right? The more recently, right, the, the Singapore excluded the Chinese vaccine from its count of the total vaccinations against COVID-19. You know, basically citing inadequate efficacy data for the Chinese vaccines.
As you're talking, and you had mentioned earlier about the developing countries versus the countries that are developers of vaccines, are you seeing sort of the difference in international opinion of Chinese vaccines largely fall in line with countries that are sort of higher income developer countries that are developing their own vaccines versus countries that don't quite have the same resources and are more dependent on either China or the international community for vaccines. Do these developing countries generally have a more positive view of Chinese vaccines, or at least they're less vocal of sharing negative views about these Chinese vaccines? divide between developed and developing countries in terms of their views toward China does exist. Uh, according to an eight-data survey, media tones about China and the pandemic were most positive for Africa, followed by Asia, excluding China. Uh, they were most negative in the Americas, Europe, and Oceania. And of course, variations exist even in the developing world, with some countries viewing China's pandemic response more positively than others. You know, especially now, you know, with this rapid spread of the Delta variant, you know, which uh, finding what well, the, the Chinese vaccines, you know, uh, not as effective you know, as it was thought, you know, so there's countries like UAE, you know, Bahrain, you know, they were actually asking people why some people after they received the two Chinese vaccines, now they ask to receive a boost shot using a Western vaccine, right? In Thailand, they were also debating on whether, you know, such a booster vaccine using Pfizer's vaccines are actually necessary because the country has relied on the Chinese vaccines in its mass vaccine rollout. And I would imagine China is also considering these booster vaccines for their own population too, right? Yeah, well, they've, but first of all, they got to approve the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for its use in China. I wanted to go off on sort of a different discussion. So we've talked about how China has used vaccines to try to win goodwill, build relationships. But I guess stepping back, in terms of looking at all of the different efforts that China has done in the pandemic, do we see China as using its various efforts, whether those are through medical equipment, supplies, or vaccines, to try to take on more leadership roles and responsibilities globally, particularly in terms of public health? Have you seen evidence of that since 2020 or in 2021? Yeah, yeah, we have. Uh, well, this is actually could be examined you know, from uh, two aspects. Right? The first, you know, China tried to promote its pandemic response. It's a relative success, you know, as sort of a vindication of the superiority of the so-called China model, you know, authoritarian governance. Because <laughs> clearly, right, this relative success, you know, China in sort of reigning, you know, the uh, taming the spread of the virus while the relative failure of the Western countries until recently in stemming the spread of the virus, you know, give the China perfect opportunity to claim what the success of the top-down authoritarian, you know, Chinese approach by right, to the pandemic. And secondly, why China could claim the leadership, you know, by being the first movers by right, in terms of providing the PPE vaccines and all this other 
critical, you know, medical products, right? So as President Xi's claim, right, China is making the vaccine, you know, like global public good, right? So he's trying to portray itself as a leader, right, in providing global public goods as well. Uh, even though right, if you look at how the vaccines marketed, right, um, only a very small percentage of that actually through donations. Is there also evidence that China might be taking more of a role in terms of international organizations related to public health? Or have you not necessarily seen a significant increase in Chinese influence in terms of international organizations? When we talk about international organizers, certainly well, what comes to my mind is the World Health Organization, right? Certainly, right, if you compare the United States, China, in terms of the funding to WHO, you know, China clearly is not a major funder of the international organization, but it has been very successful in terms of increasing its influence within the organization. Well, that's for WHO, certainly by right, the needs by Chinese cooperation in addressing public health emergencies of international concern. So that explains why, despite its frustration over China's failure to provide complete information in the initial stage of the outbreak, the WHO praised you know, China for setting a new standard for outbreak control, right? So in a way, it also helped China's you know, rebranding efforts after March 2020 to portray itself as a successful leader in pandemic response. The WHO also helped right, China in terms of vaccine development. And actually, before China started its controversial emergency use programs for its vaccine candidates, the country claimed it had gained, quote unquote, understanding and support from the WHO. You know, and uh, certainly in May and June this year, while the WHO approved the two Chinese vaccines for emergency use, you know, that were expected to further China's efforts to promote vaccine diplomacy. But uh, in the meantime, right, the Trump administration's move right, to hot funding to WHO and later to terminate its relationship with the organization also increased you know, China's you know, ability to influence you know, the organization. Right? Uh, actually, right after Trump you know, announced that the United States would suspend the WHO funding, China pledged $30 million for the organization's coronavirus effort. Also used uh, the Trump's decision to quit the WHO to sort of delegitimize the U.S. involvement in WHO-related activities, you know, such as investigating the COVID-19's origins, you know, and uh, we know that in January, right, the way the WHO, right, the international team, right, spent four weeks in China, right, they announced the preliminary findings that essentially supported the Chinese official narrative on the outbreak regions, you know, that were actually the most authoritative support, right, China had received in terms of its region's narrative. It was so, it was clearly a PR victory for China. But, you know, that approach also, in a way, backfired, right, since May this year, when, right, the, and more people support the lab escape, you know, as a credible explanation of the origins of the outbreak. You're seeing by right, this recent survey 
carried out in the United States, you know, like I think at least a half, I think maybe a majority, I forgot exactly the number, but, uh, you know, people showed clearly, right, that the support of the theory on the lab leak in terms of the origins of the pandemic. That's a really good topic that I feel we need to talk a little bit about. I wanted to get your personal thought to see if you find the scientific evidence behind the lab leak theory to be relatively sound, if you think that it is a credible theory. And if it is, what does that mean in terms of U.S.-China relations as well as how the international community should respond to China? Does that mean the international community should be asking China for more transparency or maybe even payments? What are your thoughts on this, I know, pretty controversial issue? A non-scientist, so I cannot comment, right, in terms of the merit, right, of the lab leak theory, you know, but I do know, right, there's still, right, we don't have a consensus, right, even in the scientific community, right, in terms of the regions of the pandemic, you know, still there's a clear significant segment of the scientific community that are convinced, you know, this is just a natural, you know, spillover event, even though, you know, the lab leak, you know, seems to be becoming a legitimate hypothesis, you know, removed from the prior status, you know, that certainly could have, you know, implications for U.S.-China relations, you know, and we have seen, right, the how, over the past days, you've seen how the Huan Wang, right, the uh, opening this, the, uh, for signature, this open letter calling for the international investigation of the U.S. military lab, the Fort Detrick, you know, the, uh, in terms of its role in the pandemic. And, and I think at least 10 million people, you know, Chinese people already signed the open letter. So you have seen how, you know, that uh, legitimization of that theory has only further polarized the opinions right, on the origins of the pandemic. And uh, was certainly right on the U.S. side, and that would mean right, that they were seeking more transparency, you know, more investigation, in-country investigation in China. But with this growing political stakes, that actually makes it even less likely to conduct further transparent, you know, thorough in-country investigation. You know, you have seen China has nearly explicitly rejected the WHO call for the second phase study in China. Yeah, what you mentioned in terms of the Global Times call for Dietrich study or assessment, I think that's super fascinating. And 10 million people, that's not a small amount of Chinese people. But as you mentioned, it definitely shows the different polarization of the different narratives regarding COVID-19 and its origins. And that brings me to a question I do want to ask you before sort of wrapping this up and asking for your thoughts on ways in which the United States could work with China moving forward on the pandemic. But on the question of disinformation and narratives, from your perspective, what do you think are some of the main narratives China was trying to push from its end regarding COVID-19? You had already mentioned, I think, some of them, right, in terms of China being more of a successful model for countering the pandemic. Yeah, it, it is. You know, that uh, seems to be having an impact, you know, this official narrative in my 
research, you know, that actually it was also there was some uh, empirical studies suggesting, you know, China has, you know, through its official narrative, you know, promotion has managed to repel its damaged international reputation, managed its international image, you know, including in the uh, developing world. You know, there were studies, you know, suggesting that overall, that impact has been successful, although, you know, that impact has not been very significant, in my opinion. Great, thank you. Let me just close with one last question. I know you've done quite a bit of work on how the United States could work with China on public health issues, including on the pandemic. So as you're reflecting on all the different activities China has done to address COVID-19, what would you recommend as a couple of activities or course of action for the United States in thinking about working with China? Well, there are a lot of things why the United States could work with China, you know, then certainly why the COVID-19 pandemic highlighted, right, that this importance of uh, working with China, right, over the uh, public health, you know, global health security. You know, I could think of, you know, st- you know several areas, right, the certainly what the area that would include, you know, the cooperation over the uh, public health infrastructure building, the both countries' response to the pandemic. You know, China initially, right, they didn't manage well you know, in terms of the outbreak response. And the United States too, right? Even though, right, it's considered uh, the country, you know, with the most uh, sort of like a standard bearer in terms of the outbreak response, you know, still we have seen how, you know, the U.S. public health system has not been doing very well responding to the pandemic, you know. So this is certainly an area that both countries could share experiences, could uh, cooperate with each other to improve their search capacity in dealing with future outbreaks. There are also areas we just talk about the misinformation and disinformation. You know, we've seen how in both countries, you know, there were this conspiracy theories being very popular, right? In the United States, you know, people were talking about, you know, how this could be, you know, like caused this pandemic caused by military involvement, right? Of the uh, Chinese lab in Wuhan. It was a very popular conspiracy theory, right? That was promoted by the Chinese diplomats, right? In terms of, Attributing the pandemic you know, to accident uh, in uh, Fort Detrick. Right? So, you know, how, you know, the countries maybe it was time for the two you know, to have a global health dead town, right? They stopped, you know, this disinformation campaign against each other. There are also areas, you know, like in terms of uh, biosafety and biosecurity, right? That could be done through the global health security agenda. The U.S. was initiator of this important agenda, you know, so that agenda maybe could be expanded to all to focus on, you know, how to come up with enforceable international norms by dealing with, you know, the wild animals trade, you know, and also by developing protocols, the potential, you know, lab accidents. So there's just a lot of, you know, areas, you know, the two could work, you know, with each other, you know, and uh, that, uh, you know, I think has nothing to do 
with strategic competition between the two and should be, you know, this cooperation should be separate, you know, be immune from, you know, the competition between the two countries. Thank you, Andrew. I think your list of recommendations is very timely, particularly as you mentioned, as the two countries are engaging in more and more strategic competition, trying to identify these areas where we should and still need to cooperate will become more and more important. But thank you very much, Andrew. I very much appreciated all your insights and very in-depth analysis of an issue that I know you followed very closely in the past couple of years. So thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.